All right. Greetings to all of our campuses. We are so glad that all of you are here. Um, I wanted to let you know about something really cool happening in our services in a couple weeks, and it kind of ties into what we just experienced with our kids singing and all of that. We're basically going to be doing, this is the first time we've done this, but we're going to be doing a huge child dedication where every child gets prayed for and blessed. So parents and grandparents, you don't want to miss this, okay? Uh, again, it's in two weeks, the weekend of December 19th and 20th at all of our services. You'll, you'll, you'll check in your children as usual to Tiny Tots and to Kids Connection, and then we'll give more direction during the service. So I am super excited about the teaching theme for that weekend and about what God is going to be doing in our church. It's not just for parents. The teaching is going to be for everyone, but it's going to be an awesome weekend. So don't miss it and bring your kids, okay? Can't wait. So I'm one of those people who loves Christmas. I mean, I love seeing the lights and decorations. I love putting up our Christmas tree. Um, I love those little turtle candies you make, you know, with a Rolo and a pretzel and all those things. Um, I love hearing Michael Buble singing the Christmas song. I mean, I love watching cheesy Christmas movies. Um, I actually enjoy Christmas shopping, you know, so I love so much about this season. And I think one of the reasons, one of the reasons I love this season so much is because of the way I viewed it as a child. I remember as a little boy, this whole season felt magical to me. The idea of, of Santa and seeing gifts appear under our Christmas tree and the possibility of snow and knowing school would be out soon. There was something magical about this whole season when I was a child. And I think that's the case for most of us when we look back at our feelings about Christmas as children. Even if our current experience of Christmas is not that enjoyable, with all the stress and the hectic pace and the expectations and the pang of loneliness or loss, when we think back to our childhood, most of us have a different feeling about Christmas, a more positive feeling. So as we were planning this teaching series... We had this thought, what if we could experience today the Christmas we think we remember? Think about that for a minute, right? What, what, if, what would it look like for us to recapture some of the elements of Christmas that captivated us as children and yet to do so from a biblical perspective? You see, when we truly understand what Christmas represents from a biblical perspective, it really can bring about, um, bring almost magical childlike joy and, and wonder into our lives. Except this is real. This is real and lasting. So when I think about um, my experience of Christmas as a child, one of my most, one of, the, one of the most powerful aspects of it was the sense of anticipation, the waiting for Christmas morning coming down, you know, counting down the days and everything in my little heart was focused on that upcoming morning, you know, anticipating the joy and the excitement of getting presents. I couldn't wait. I remember not being able to sleep on Christmas Eve. I would negotiate with my parents, you know, about how early we could get up and, and I'd set my alarm and usually I'd wake up before that and just lay there, you know, watching the digits on my digital clock just slowly move and quietly listening to Christmas music on the radio. And when that, when those numbers hit seven o'clock, 7 a.m., and I jumped out of bed, I woke up my groggy parents and other siblings, and we headed to the living room to see what Santa had brought. See, what I've come to realize is that so much of the magic of Christmas for me as a child is what was in the anticipation of Christmas, in the waiting, knowing that something good and wonderful was coming. 
So I wonder, what if we could capture, what if we could recapture that sense of anticipation in our lives? What if we, as we move into adulthood, could still capture the power of Christmas anticipation? And I totally believe that can happen. And the reason I believe it can happen is because the Bible actually talks about this. The Christmas season provides us a unique opportunity to fan into flame this life-giving and energizing dynamic of anticipation, no matter what our circumstances. You see, the Bible has a very specific and a very powerful word for this kind of life-giving anticipation. It's called hope. Hope. The Christmas story is ultimately about hope. In its initial context in the scriptures, the Christmas account is about a people who were desperately waiting for a savior, for a Messiah who would come rescue them from bondage and darkness. The Jewish people had specific prophecies in the Old Testament, prophecies that promised a savior who would come for them. For instance, From Isaiah chapter 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So they waited and they waited for centuries. They waited for this promise to be fulfilled, hoping for this Messiah to come. As the Christmas carol describes, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. The thrill of hope. Their Messiah that they had longed for had now come. Jesus was born. Their hope had been realized. Now, now obviously, we, we know this. We live on the other side of that event, right? We know that the Messiah has come in the person of Jesus. We know he was born of, of Mary in, in a manger. We know that he lived. We know that he died on a cross and that he rose to life again. We know that he has come past tense. And yet our circumstances are surprisingly similar to those Jews living before his first coming. Because we too live in a world of great darkness and suffering. The the daily reality, almost daily reality of terrorism. 14 people slaughtered in California this this last week. Over 100 killed in, in Paris a few weeks ago. A passenger plane shot down a month ago. There is a growing sense of fear, of despair, and hopelessness about this world in which we live. And there is also the very real personal challenge we've, challenges we face every day, it seems. I hear of another person with a cancer diagnosis. People all around me battling with addictions, with anxiety, with depression, with relational discord, with with disappointment. Our world is a mess. Our circumstances often feel overwhelming. And it is very easy for a sense of hopelessness and despair to settle in to all of our hearts. So what are we to do? Where are we to turn? See, I believe the Lord wants to stir in us 
Even as we gather here, I believe the Lord wants to stir in us a childlike anticipation this Christmas. That he wants to reawaken hope in our hearts. It's a very similar anticipation and hope experienced centuries ago by those who were waiting for their Messiah to come. We too are waiting for our Messiah to come. The Apostle Paul talks about this anticipation in this amazing section of scripture in Philippians chapter 3. He begins in verse 17 by talking about the reality of the world in which we live. See if any of this sounds familiar. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Paul is vividly describing life on this planet, life on earth. He accurately says that many live as enemies of the cross of Jesus. He admits that tears are coming to his eyes as he is writing these words. He sees and he feels the pain of this world. He is well aware of the darkness that sin brings. People who are living lives with their minds set on earthly things. Their God is their stomach, he says. All they can think about is satisfying their own needs and desires and cravings. He says their glory is in their shame. Meaning they boast in behaviors and attitudes they should be ashamed of. And Paul hadn't even been on the internet when he wrote these words. I mean, imagine if he had that window into humanity. Elsewhere in this book of Philippians, he highlights the suffering that Christians are experiencing. We're seeing the same thing today. Paul could just as easily, in this, these words here, be describing our world today. Where the values of Jesus are increasingly disconnected and opposed by the world around us. So in the midst of living in this kind of a world, which he describes, we can relate to it. In the midst of living in this kind of world, what does Paul tell us to do? Well, look with me at Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. But our citizenship, he writes, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. See, Paul is saying, yes, this world is a mess. But in the midst of all of that, Paul is saying, I urge you to remember something. This is not your home. This is not your home. Your citizenship is in heaven. Citizenship speaks of a person's home, their own country. I mean, we we get a passport, right, when we want to travel around the world. And we can stay, go to different places and visit different places for a particular length of time. But that passport tells us that our citizenship is somewhere else, right? It's not where we're traveling. Our citizenship is somewhere else. Our, Our citizenship reveals where we call home. See, where is your ultimate citizenship? Where do you call home? If you're a Christian, 
If you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says that your ultimate citizenship, your ultimate home is not here. It is not here. Your ultimate home is in heaven. Do we really believe this? Do we live our lives as if this were true? Well, here, here's one way to tell. Look at, look at what Paul says. He gives us a clue here. After telling us we are citizens of heaven, look at what he says. Verse 20. In fact, I'd like all of us here to read this. Read this out loud with me. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We eagerly await. He's talking about anticipation, right? Isn't that what children are doing as Christmas approaches? They are eagerly awaiting that day. And Paul urges us to have the same attitude about Jesus' second coming. He urges us to live with a sense of eager anticipation about that day when Jesus will come again and we will, we will go to be with him in heaven. Do we eagerly anticipate that? Do we? See, one of the things that I believe God wants to do in our, our hearts this Christmas season and in this service is to fill us with eager anticipation regarding his second coming and the hope of heaven. See, we, we, tend, to make, we tend to make Christmas only about his first coming. He came as a baby, Right? But when we make Christmas only about his first coming, we miss something very powerful and very important. One of the most beloved Christmas carols is joy to the world, right? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven and heaven and nature sing. We all know that song. But did you realize that that song was actually written to describe Jesus' second coming? There is nothing in that song about shepherds, about Bethlehem, about wise men, baby Jesus. There is nothing. That's because Isaac Watts, who wrote this carol, was not describing the first coming of Jesus. He was talking about Jesus' second Coming, let heaven and nature sing. And some of the other verses, no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. When's that going to happen? He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nation prove. Those, the, the nations prove, those words are right out of the book of Revelation. That whole song is out, is written out of the book of Revelation. Describing the effects of the second coming. How he will, Jesus will restore what sin has brought, thorns and all that from Genesis 1. He will restore what sin has brought and he will make all things right. And heaven and nature will sing. Heaven and nature will sing. Joy to the world. That song is a description of a heart that is living in joyful anticipation of Jesus' second coming. And the hope of heaven. It is, it is a song to be sung by those who cannot wait for that day. So let me just ask. Do you eagerly anticipate that day? Do we eagerly long for the hope of heaven? For many of us, 
I don't think we do. We don't live in, 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 in the anticipation that Paul is describing here. Pastor KJ told me about a, a talk he heard recently from the academic dean at, at, Divinity, at Duke Divinity School. And this, this man was sharing with, I think, some youth leaders, but he was sharing his biggest concern about this younger millennial generation's spirituality. Here was his biggest concern. He said that so many of them don't have the end in mind. They're not thinking about heaven. Everything is about the here and now. Heaven coming to earth. But there is very little attention or thought given to the coming of Jesus and our hope in heaven. But it's not just the younger generation. For those of us who are not in that generation, we, we often as well. We don't think much about heaven. Many of us don't think that much about heaven. We don't, we don't talk much about heaven. Even though there are over 500 Bible verses, 500 Bible verses that talk about heaven, it is not something that fills us, typically it's not something that fills us with eager anticipation. So why is that? Why is that? Well, there, there are a couple of reasons, in my opinion, there are a couple of reasons that we don't and that we don't more eagerly anticipate heaven. For one thing, I think many of us have a fairly anemic view of heaven. We have a fairly anemic view of heaven. If we're honest, our perception of heaven often feels pretty boring. I mean, sitting around, singing all day, you know, doing harp ensembles with angels. I mean, why would anyone, except a harp player, why would anyone eagerly anticipate that? But that's not the way heaven is described in the Bible. It will be anything but boring. Look again what Paul says in verse 21. Who, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is amazing. Paul is saying that in heaven, these lowly bodies, these bodies that feel the effects of sin and disease, these bodies that eventually give way to age and heart disease and cancer, these bodies will be transformed by Jesus so, they will, so that they will be like his glorious body. What does that mean? It means a body that is eternal, a body that is free from disease, a body that is completely healthy. But it means more than that. Notice the word glorious. Glorious. What an interesting word. So that they will be like his glorious body. He's talking about our bodies will be like his glorious body. See, Paul is saying that our bodies will not only be whole in terms of physical health, they will be glorious. They will be glorious. We will share in Christ's glory. The word glory speaks of perfection, of brilliance, of something that is truly awesome. We use that word a lot. This is talking about what it really means. It is something that is deserving of awe. Paul is saying, this is what our bodies will be like. See, not only will we see Jesus in all of his glory, which will be awesome, we will also share in his glory. That's what he's saying here. 
We will share in his glory. Our bodies will be glorious. They will be brilliant, perhaps with superhero capabilities. Seriously, superhuman capabilities. Won't that be cool? These bodies that are right now vulnerable to sickness and disease and aging and weakness will be made glorious, transformed is the word Paul uses. They will be made glorious by Jesus. So that's one reason to anticipate heaven. New, superhuman, glorious bodies. Every wannabe superhero, right? You can long, we can long for that. But there's more to anticipate. With these new bodies, we will also have abilities in heaven to create, to build, to to produce gifts to use to the glory of God. Also in heaven, there will be rewards to enjoy. Rewards for the good things we have done in this life. There will be rewards for the financial generosity we demonstrated on earth. Jesus talks about this almost all, every time he talks about giving. He talks about financial rewards. How when we give to the Lord on earth, we are storing up treasure in heaven. Eternal treasure that can never be taken away. See, Jesus talked about heaven being a banquet in some of the parables. He talks about it being a banquet, a party, a celebration. It will be, it will be beyond anything we could ever imagine in terms of fulfillment, in terms of joy, in terms of relational connectedness, a sense of purpose, a sense of value, an experience of love. It will be beyond anything we could imagine. No hatred, no ISIS, no murders, no bullying, no abuse, no violence, no sex trafficking, no racism, no pornography, no injustice. Instead, it will be filled with laughter and joy and hope and peace. See, that's what the Bible tells us heaven will be like. We have these promises in God's word, promises from our Savior himself that heaven is for real. Jesus himself is telling us heaven is for real and it will be far more wonderful than we could ever imagine. When that is our view of heaven, it really is something we can look forward to, something we can eagerly anticipate. Okay, so that's one reason we don't anticipate heaven more. It's because we have a fairly anemic, boring, and unbiblical view of what heaven will be like. But there's another reason. There's another reason we don't eagerly anticipate heaven. And that's because our hearts are in love with this world. Our hearts are often seduced into falling in love with this world the things of this world. We so easily spend our lives chasing after and setting our hearts upon all that this world can offer, the wonderful things that money can buy, the adulation of looking young and beautiful, the craving for more accolades, more successes, more creature comforts, more Twitter followers, whatever. Jesus spells it out very directly in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Let me read this. You can listen here. 
Um, yeah, John spells it out very clearly here. First John 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. I mean, what a vivid picture of how the world seduces us. Three things, the lust of the flesh, it's this craving for pleasure, and the lust of the eyes, right? Greed, pornography, the lust of the eyes, these things that we see that, that captivate our hearts and the pride of life, which is probably the root sin of all sins, right? Pride, trusting in our own beauty or our own abilities or our own successes. Pride says to the world, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at how beautiful I dress. Look at how successful I am. Look at me. It's all about me. Now, those things that John describes here, they are all, here's, here's the fascinating thing. They are all portrayed by the world around us in appealing ways. Our world celebrates these things. And, and they seduce us. They're presented in clever, appealing, seductive ways. And we easily fall into the trap of loving this world. We love this world. We're trying to make our home here. I mean, no wonder heaven is not really even on our radar. We have so much here to set our hearts upon. But, but as John warns us, all of these things, he says in the last verse, I just read verse 17, all of these things, guess what? They're all going to fade. The most beautiful of women, the most handsome of men, all of them get old. The richest of the rich all eventually die, leaving their estate to someone else. All the toys and technology we are purchasing this month, <laughs> this December, all those toys and technology we're so excited about will very soon, very soon, be in a junk pile gathering rust. All of them. The question of heaven becomes a question of what we are setting our hearts upon. Are, are our hearts set upon and in love with Jesus above all else? If so, heaven becomes something we can get really excited about. It becomes something we will anticipate with eagerness. Now, there is something that God consistently uses to encourage us to turn our hearts toward heaven. And that something is suffering. Suffering. The suffering that comes from getting old and our bodies are not functioning the way they used to. The suffering that comes from tragedy, from circumstances that damage us and hurt us, the, 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 or the, 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 the grief that comes from the loss of a loved one, watching a friend die of, of cancer or wrestle with some disease. There is nothing quite like suffering to wake us up to the realization that this world is not our home. That this world can't offer us what our hearts truly long for. 
I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. He, he writes, The modern philosopher had told me again and again that I was in the right place. And I still felt depressed, even in acquiescence. But when I heard that I was in the wrong place, my soul sang for joy like a bird in spring. I mean, do you hear what he's saying? Again and again, modern philosophy had told him that this world is all there is. This is your home. Make the best of it. And that thought depressed him. But when he heard that this world is not all there is, that this world is not his home, when he heard that, his soul sang for joy like a bird in spring. Suffering has a way of reminding us that this world is not our home. And I wonder sometimes if the aging process is designed to gradually reinforce this truth in our hearts. No matter how hard we try to stay young, to be healthy, eventually these earthly bodies will wear out. They will give way to age and to eventually death. If our ultimate hope is in this life, we're to be pitied. Because this life doesn't offer much to place our hope in. Everyone seems to be chasing after what this life can offer, but it always leaves us empty, always. When you get to the top, it's still empty up there. What God urges us to do in the midst of this world that is trying to seduce us, God urges us to pay attention to those longings in our soul. They're there. We just don't pay attention because we're preoccupied with other things. But pay attention. Those longings are there. Pay attention to those longings in our soul. In the, to those moments of clarity when we realize this world, is this it? When we realize this world doesn't satisfy God urges us to experience suffering in such a way that it actually points our hearts toward heaven, reminding us that this is not our home. This is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where our ultimate citizenship is. It's in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. Over Thanksgiving, over the Thanksgiving holiday, we went to see the movie The Martian, um, which is about an astronaut played by Matt Damon who gets stranded on Mars. His team leaves him there thinking that he's dead, but he's not. He's alive millions, my, millions of miles from home, but very much alive. So in the movie, in order to survive, he uses the limited resources he has, buying time, waiting for someone to come rescue him from this desolation, from this isolation. Now, sorry if I'm spoiling the movie, but you know he gets home, right? Even if you haven't seen them, but you know he's going to get home. So, so just chill out a little bit, okay? But um, so, so what happens is that after a variety of failed attempts to get him, his team, his crew, still in their spaceship, they're heading home. They, they decide to go back and rescue him, but it takes over a year for them to get there. And there's this very powerful moment where he is on Mars, 
He's been there for over a year. He's on Mars getting ready. There's a, there's a uh, launch vehicle there. He's getting ready to be launched into orbit to meet this spaceship that has this rescue spaceship with his crew. It's his former crew. They, they've come back and, and they're, they're, they're going to be united there. And so he's talking. They're, they're connecting um, through their, the devices they have. He's talking to the crew just before launch. And with tears in his eyes, he says to them, Thanks for coming back for me. Thanks for coming back for me. And when I heard that, there was something, it just stirred something in my heart. And so I was thinking about it after the movie and I realized, I realized what it was. You see, I long for the same thing and you do too. As we spend our lives on this planet trying to survive the isolation, the pain, the difficulties within our hearts, as we're trying to survive all those things, within our hearts, there is a longing for home. There's a longing for our real home. And we have a Savior who at great personal sacrifice is coming back for us. We do have to wait. We do have to wait. And sometimes the waiting seems like it's more than we can bear. But he is coming back. He is coming back to rescue us, to restore us, to take us home to heaven where we will fully experience the life that we were truly created to experience. A life without pain, without fear, without death or grief. And one day, one day, we're going to look him in the eyes and we're going to say, thank you for coming back for me. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for coming back for me. That is a hope we can cling to. That's a hope we can set our heart upon. Now, here's the, here's the coolest thing of all. Jesus himself anticipated that day. <laughs> On the night before his crucifixion, he, he took bread with his disciples, right? He took bread and he broke it. And he gave thanks and he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup of wine and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood for, of the forgiveness of for the uh, blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, we, we've heard that. We understand that, right? But then, then he said something absolutely astounding. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Hours before his crucifixion, Jesus is thinking about heaven. Hours before he is going to be nailed to a cross, he is thinking about heaven, about that day when he will celebrate the rescue of his beloved ones who are finally home with him forever. He can't wait for that day. He can't wait for that day. How about you and me? How about you and me? In the midst of the stress of the season, the emotional pain that surfaces, the challenges of life we face, in the midst of the darkness of this world, our hearts can be filled with childlike anticipation for that day when our Savior will come back for us 
and we will be with him forever. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray together. God, thank you for this hope that we have. Every day we read newspaper, newspaper we hear, see the news, and it, it is overwhelming. The evil in this world and the darkness. But we thank you for this hope that we have, the promises in your word that tell us you are coming back to rescue us. You're coming back to take us home. And we're so grateful for that promise and that hope that we can hang on to even when things in our lives are falling apart. And especially when things are falling apart. Thank you for the hope of heaven. And I pray for each person here that you would stir in our hearts an eager anticipation of heaven. And that we would never lose that, never lose sight of that promise. Even in the waiting that seems so long, we would never lose sight of the ultimate, our ultimate destination. And the coming that you have promised. So we thank you. Pour out that hope into our hearts, we pray. (laughs) 